Welcome to Impact on Record, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into impact investing. We'll bring you the stories about the deal makers, the structure of the deals, and most importantly, the impacted. This podcast is brought to you by The Dreamer. Hello. The Skeptic. Hey. And me, The Realist. On today's episode, we have Donald Hickel Brown, who is the president and CEO of the Reinvestment Fund which acts as a catalyst for change in low-income communities. Donald is a recognized leader in mission investing and capacity building. For more information on the Reinvestment Fund, please visit reinvestment.com. And we're going on record in three, two, and... Hi, Donald. Welcome to the Impact on Record podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's get started. So can you share with us a little bit about your background and the reinvestment fund? Uh, sure. Um, I am the CEO of reinvestment fund, which is a little over 30 year old uh, financial institution slash nonprofit that connects capital and data to underinvested places. Um, I began my career as a banker, um, as many people in finance do. And uh, I had the, um, pleasure in my uh, education to take uh, the moral foundations of professional ethics. So nothing like a philosophy minor to mess you up in your career. And I went, in, I went into banking uh, firmly believing that banking, like doctoring and lawyering, was a well-established profession. And what I found when I got there was um, not a profession. Uh, there was no civic purpose. There was no public purpose remembered within the profession. And um, as I learned the trade, I learned that no one remembered whose money it was anymore. And it was very unfulfilling. Um, and uh, while I was learning my banking trade, um, I began to volunteer with an organization that then was called the Delaware Valley Community Reinvestment Fund. And uh, I was my bank's representative to that organization's loan committee after we made a, a donation and an investment in this, this strange fund in Philadelphia. And uh, I began to realize that my work on that loan fund at night uh, was more meaningful and more motivating than my work um, during the day. And it was sometime later, a few years later, that um, the loan fund was hiring. and. Um, I threw my hat in the ring and uh, never looked back. Let's take a step back and maybe define uh, what a CDFI is, a community development financial institution. And if you can give us a brief history, that that would be really helpful. Absolutely. That that term is a, is a defined term from the U.S. Treasury created during the Clinton administration. The Clintons were familiar with community development finance from their work in Arkansas with, uh, I believe, Southern Bank Corp. Uh, was who they were familiar with. And um, they were receptive to the idea that there were a few of these nascent organizations across the country and that they should be encouraged. So while many of us have a history that goes back a decade or more before the creation of the term CDFI, uh, we are all now CDFIs. Um, uh, that means that you are an organization dedicated to connecting uh, money to underinvested places, specifically um, either defined by particular places of low income, poverty, or unemployment, or 
populations of people that are low income, wherever they may be. Um, so you can target population or you can target place. Some of us, like reinvestment fund, do both. So how large is the reinvestment fund and what are some of the types of investments being made? Sure, sure. The reinvestment fund manages um, approximately a billion dollars today. Um, we have over 865 unique uh, individual or corporate or association investors. Um, many of them have been with us for a very, very long time. We have, um, we've invested $1.9 billion in our history. Um, we have a number of different vehicles for that, one of which is our parent company, you know, the CDFI itself, who has its own balance sheet. And then we uh, raise funds for a number of different purposes, either for place-based purposes or product concentration purposes. We will launch a fund. We are launching this fall uh, a fund for pay for success in America. Uh, it is seeded by ourselves, Living Cities, and an investment from an Australian insurance company. We are also launching a nationwide um, energy efficiency and sustainable development fund um, seeded with uh, a senior investment from MetLife Bank and subordinate finance from us. Um, we also have charter funds. We have early childcare funds. We have supermarket funds for fresh food access in low-income areas that have a lack of access. We have some place-based funds. Uh, we also manage a small amount of money from the Department of Justice settlement funds for housing investments where there have been foreclosure abuses. So a whole host of mission-related things, uh, but what it all comes to is directing mission-motivated capital at places that have been divested. Um, and that's been our history. And we've grown, you know, in the last, um, our last 10 years is probably more like half of our existence, even though we're about 32 years old, given the, uh, the hockey sticking of our of the scale of our operations. Uh, we're really growing pretty dramatically. The reinvestment fund has made so many different types of investments, but can you walk us through a typical investment for impact and how you decide whether or not to invest in a particular project? Oh, sure. Well, um, like many um, loan funds or other mission-motivated investors or impact-motivated investors, you know, we're, we're looking for a, a target benefit and a, usually a target population or a target effect um, with particular capital. And you can, you can go out and pursue those transactions in a very linear way and say to yourself, I, I have money, I've raised money for job creation, and I'm going to go find a deal that creates a few jobs. And many in the field are capable of doing that. The reinvestment fund prides itself on having a strategic layer, which means that we analyze data to aim our investments to be as impactful as possible. So in the case of Vincent's tropical market in Brockton, Massachusetts, for example, we have a program to finance fresh food access in low-income neighborhoods that are otherwise disconnected from healthy fresh food options. And here we found a local minority entrepreneur who had uh, plans to purchase a blighted and vacant shopping plaza in Brockton, Massachusetts, and opened his second grocery store. And he had, he had picked this particular location for his purposes based on what he thought his business model, where it would work, and also that this was a large um, Cape Verdean community, which um, he shared something in common with. That was very common to his first store's location. We looked at the location, and before we would get involved, we analyzed 
the degree to which this particular location was underserved for food access. And if this had been the third or fourth grocery store for Brockton, Massachusetts, we would have probably taken a pass and looked for a more impactful investment uh, use for our money. But this was um, very high in its um, in its um, score around a lack of access. We did our own nationwide study called a low access supermarket analysis, which ranks uh, census tracts and block groups by the degree to which people travel inordinately far for food. The USDA has their own uh, measurement called the Food Atlas. And um, either one of those is credible. We believe ours is a little more accurate in urban areas. And we use that as a tool to create eligibility before we take action. So then we decided that this was an eminently desirable location that was um, very underserved in terms of food access and moved forward. And in the end, um, this five acre site uh, was repurposed with a 33,000 square foot supermarket. Uh, we provided $1.8 million in financing, but so did two other um, CDFI partners. And um, in the end, there was a brand new community focused, ethnically appropriate grocery store for the neighborhood. And also on the site, uh, there ended up being a federally qualified health center leasing out the rest of the space. And those two businesses, the grocery store and the health center, have uh, an interesting synergy. And most of the places more recently where we've financed food, we've also financed healthcare. And the two go hand in hand in that at the health clinic, uh, one can walk a patient next door and help them shop and understand what foods they need to lower their blood sugar um, or to control their um, any coronary disease or other health issue. Um, and uh, those two businesses have gotten along quite well. And um, dietitians now are routinely doing free nutrition and cooking classes in the grocery store. Uh, about 84% of the people who've taken those courses have lowered their blood sugar. It's been a great success story. Uh, Donald, you mentioned the evolution of the fund, and particularly the progress you've made over the last 10 years. There are you know, uh, very diversified um, investments in different areas. Was that a part of the, the plan from the outset, or was it an iterative process where you saw opportunity? Well, you know, like uh, many of our uh, peer loan funds, we all started with um, small-scale affordable housing projects and small-scale community facility projects, community facilities being what the industries catch all back in the day for anything that wasn't housing, right? <laughs> so our first loan was actually um, uh, an after-school facility and arts program in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It was not a housing deal. And ever since then, um, housing has only been one of our products. So we've always been uh, what we call an A to Z lender. We have a very wide array of skill sets on staff for what we can underwrite. And we do that very specifically because if we were a monoplay, whether it's housing or food, if we were a monoplay, we would not have the ability with that single toolkit, as robust and large as it might be if we focused on one thing, we wouldn't have the ability to transform places. And we don't really believe we would have the same effect in building people's uh, wealth or health. Um, we believe you need a multi-pronged approach to change a place, and you need a multi-pronged approach to change a life. Um, it's not just about a seat in an educational opportunity. It's not just about a job. It's not just about 
healthcare. But when you do all of those things in a concerted fashion, in a particular uh, um, small footprint, you you saturate the area with opportunity, and you saturate the uh, the area with uh, access. And we believe that that's the root of providing more change. Great. And what is your typical uh, investment? Um, obviously, uh, there'll be varying needs within these communities. Um, what are what are typical as far as size? In terms of size, yeah. um, are are they're all over the board. We have a pretty wide bell curve in terms of transaction size, but it is quite large. So I I'm guessing that our average deal size is probably between one and two million dollars. Um, that has grown over the years. You know, probably ten years ago, that average might have been five or eight hundred thousand dollars. That has grown as we have become um, uh, more prolific in the commercial real estate space. Those transactions tend to be fairly big. Housing has always had its own kind of size parameters, and sometimes it's large if you're doing multifamily, and sometimes it's small if you're doing single family. Um, but with the pr- prevalence of different kinds of commercial real estate in our portfolio, we've seen our act our average transaction size grow over the years. Our portfolio is concentrated in um, educational real estate, in um, groceries and other commercial real estate for rent, and in affordable housing assets. The the question specifically was uh, there are national figures that indicate that some of the areas you work, which is mostly low-income urban areas um, are worse off now uh, economically than in 2000. This was a a publication from Yale University um, that was released on September 18, 2017. Um, For me, uh, in the investment part of all of this, is that wealthy Americans are the most inaccurate in estimating these racial um, inequalities, economic inequalities. Uh, they think everybody is doing well. Um, so uh, the question is, uh, specifically, how does that affect um, fundraising for some of your work? Uh, how does it affect the perceptions of your your work as far as the need to invest in some of these areas? And um, and then what has worked and, and, and what needs to improve? Well, the reason why I think the question of what's worked and what needs to improve is linked to this, um, both the, the demographics and the, the data that's coming out around trends and also people's perceptions around those trends. Why they're linked is um, what needs to change in our field is that this experiment, which it largely has been to date, a kind of small experiment on the margin, needs to be scaled. Um, our work is is in, unable to affect the macroeconomic trends because we don't have access to macroeconomic sized resources. So uh, we are a billion dollars in assets under management. And frankly, that is about the equivalent of three successful bank branches, right? So how would you expect a bank with three branches to change the world? And you can't. Um, so our, ass- our assets are just not sized to the task. Now, what we're doing is we're proving concept. We're proving that our portfolios are of great quality. 
you know, the fact that we obtained a double A S&P rating in the last two years is proof that these assets can perform um, when housed on a healthy balance sheet, um, that they're fine. And um, as a result, we're beginning to see uh, some fresh uptake from more conventional market forces and not just public relations money and CRA money, which are motivated by uh, publicity or regulatory relief and not motivated by profits and um, kind of straight up economic opportunity. And now we're starting to attract some of that conventional money, largely from insurance companies and not yet from pension funds. But as we break barriers into these new asset classes, these new, I mean, these new classes of investors, I think we'll have the ability to scale our work pretty dramatically. And then we might actually have some macroeconomic effect, even if it's just in particular municipalities and not uh, nationwide. Um, you know, the, the, tr the trends and then the perceptions of the trends have not negatively affected our work. Um, you know, in some ways, our work, because, because there is so much need, um, it doesn't matter um, what the macroeconomic data says. Um, there are poor people and there are communities disconnected from capital and there are non-functioning real estate markets all over the place. So there's a huge inventory of work for us to do. And as a result, largely the funders who fund us are aware of those facts and have not been influenced um, by either misperceptions or data trending against us. You know, I've been in this business now for a couple of decades and I've seen, you know, we saw the various trends over the years. You know, we saw the incredible rise of homelessness during the Reagan era. We saw the incredible rise in first-time jobs for welfare recipients during the Clinton years. Um, you know, we saw the kind of diminishment under the Bush years and then the build back up under the Obama years. And now we're seeing a whole new war on war on the poor um, that could be in the offing. And despite all of that, our work does continue because we're down at a level where the work is just urgent and in front of us. And those national trends in the news and, and all of that uh, can affect your mood. Um, but it doesn't really get in the way of fundraising, people seeing how important the work is, or people being excited by the fact that we have a business model that is actually self-sustaining. Yeah, I like that you're, you know, you guys are very data-driven. Uh, I looked at the policy map and some of your data, um, you know, sort of your data, uh, some of the data that you collect to inform your work. Um, how does yeah. that how does that go into measuring uh, outcomes for your investments? It's it's a uh, it's rooted right into our work. So um, in a number of different ways, I mentioned that as part of our work in financing fresh food access, we created a national database that mapped for ourselves human density, car density, store density and uh, migration patterns and travel patterns that then revealed where there are food deserts. We use that map to determine whether or not we pursue transactions. And we also use that map to try to sell locations to those looking to expand. Um, we've worked with an organization called Honor Capital, opening 10 grocery stores in um, low-income urban and rural areas. And um, 
they are planning their store openings uh, around not only market feasibility, but also uh, a need index that uh, is advised in one of many ways by our data set. When we do early childcare, um, we don't just do early childcare uh, wherever um, and, and say this center has some low income kids, therefore it's eligible. We specifically have a program where we map the supply and demand and the quality levels of early childcare resources within an entire city or region. And then we aim resources at those places where there is an insufficient supply or uh, an, an oversupply of demand for high quality childcare seats to make sure that we are producing social services and family amenities that are where the community needs them most. The early childcare um, movement and industry is not an industry that is as steeped in data as the grocery industry. The grocery industry took our data and completely understood it immediately. In early childcare, these are often lifestyle businesses as much as a grocery store is, but often um, there are so many barriers to opening um, an early childcare center that place and strength of need is not always the driver. So when funders choose to fund early child care and they open their window and invite nonprofit child care to come in for grants, they have a hard time attracting to that window not just the high-capacity groups who are opening their sixth center in an area that already has some other centers, um, but getting people to come and particularly propose to expand their capacity in areas where there is need um, and a kind of need that may be unprecedented and it's being satisfied. It may be the first center to open up in a, in a geography. And that's, that unknown quotient um, can scare an a social entrepreneur. And we try to bring our data to the table as a way of both guiding investment, but also educating people about where they can be most impactful. Because usually where you can be most impactful is also where you can be most successful. Uh, Donald, you have a, a bunch of different initiatives on your website, and you, you take a very kind of comprehensive approach to addressing um, the need that you see in the communities that you invest in. What are, you know, maybe the, the top few learnings that you could share with us and our listeners? Well, I would say, I would say implicit in our, you know, we, we weren't always a data advised shop that happened when we brought on Ira Goldstein and he built a team within our shop. We essentially have a think tank within our little bank and there's a dynamic tension and a dynamic synergy between having thinkers and researchers and transactional financiers, right? So they do, there's an interplay that uh, really has um, matured with the pay for success niche where we need both of those talents to be able to analyze those deals. Those deals aren't just about the numbers, the spreadsheets. Those deals are about the methodology of measurement, uh, measuring success. And lenders aren't uh, adapted to looking at, you know, kind of research methodologies in their underwriting. So we have both talents, and it has helped us a lot. Um, but we weren't always that way. And I would say one of the one of our learnings over the years has been to transcend the transactional. There are many who pursue a deal, and pursue the next deal, and then the next deal, 
and they become field jockeys and they're very good at it and they're great originators, but they don't always provide lasting change in the places where they have flown in to do a deal. You do one deal um, in a small city and fly on to the next state and do another standalone deal. There is transactional success in those actions, but there might not be lasting change. Uh, There might not be much spillover effect if you're not returning to those places and creating repeated transaction after transaction until you have essentially jump-started a marketplace. You know, our work is saturated with subsidy, right? Almost every asset class that we work in has a different and essential level of subsidy to it. Uh, That might not be the case in supermarkets fully in, in, in all instances. It might not be the case anymore in the energy efficiency space. But in most of the places where we work, subsidy is key. And making that subsidy as impactful as possible and as using it as efficiently as possible requires a hell of a lot of strategy and data. And um, it, it, the world is not helped if you are not analyzing whether or not the deal you're doing is an efficient use of subsidy and you're merely doing another deal. You shared with us kind of. I would. I would also. I, I would also say that talent has been just a huge, a huge category of of need and a huge category of why we're successful is the talent we've been able to attract, um, and that that is really what drives this business is the human capital that connects with these missions and uh, makes a career out of it. That's exactly what I was going to um, ask you in the sense of. You know, you sound like you know, you've been with the organization for quite some time. You did a lot of training, um, learning on the job, and wondering if you think that there is enough opportunity for others you know, to learn without having being in that particular seat. You know, is there enough training going on at our institutions or you know at universities and and other institutions where interested people could get access to that type of um, that type of knowledge? I, you know, I think, um, so when I began, it was very common for our field to go and raid classic financial institutions for talent, right? That um, There's nothing quite like a couple decades of bank mergers to make people unhappy (laughs) and to rethink their career. I myself, uh, I myself was um, in a bank merger where my HR number was lost in the computer system, and they hired my replacement who showed up one day. Oh, wow! Um, and I, you know, asked for my seat, and um, it was one of those moments where you're like, "Why am I here?" <laughs> if they don't even know that, if they don't even know that I exist, and and this was not a very large organization. This was a mid-sized super regional, but boy, they blew it in terms of talent retention. So for many years, we were able to mine conventional banks. Partly because they had very deep CRA teams. That's not the case today. There are so fewer banks, and their CRA teams are much less deep. Um, they're much more at a meta level, where they are not retail lenders, so they no longer are a place for talent for us. They're not the. I mean, we do hire bankers from time to time, but predominantly that's switched. And now, you know, we're looking at um, kind of building talent on our own. So we are looking for people with a graduate degree and a lot of 
context build up through case studies and things at higher education. Uh, when we look at places to expand and, um, you know, when I plan my travel schedule each year, it's I make sure that I am on a couple campuses every year, specifically looking at the programs which are connected to doing analyzing and doing the kind of work that we're doing. That's not the case in every uh, college or university, but there are a few where we just found incredible talent. Um, you know, there's a mix between academia and getting lost in the kind of big picture stuff versus the transactional and the, the craft. And there are some programs that have just done a great job at bridging the two, explaining the macroeconomic circumstance, but then bringing you down to an implementation level that's very helpful. So I have a lot of hope that we're generating a new generation of folks. Uh, we can teach the rest. You know, it, it, we can teach the deals. What we need is people to have the bug to want to dedicate their career to making a change. Once they want to make a change, we can do the rest. Um, what we can't do is turn kind of an unabashed capitalist into a mission staff person. Um, so you come with all the hard skills in the world. If you don't believe in it, it it's not a good fit. That's great. Uh, I see a lot of, you know, here at Yale, we probably could write um, like a lot of case studies on some of your uh, success stories you have on your website here. Um, I know you mentioned some of them earlier. Can you just, you know, or maybe your 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 two favorite ones, um, some of the deals that you've done, and just some some information that will help us understand better sort of the the role the important role that you play in these communities. Sure. So, well, one. So I uh, back in the day when I was a lender at Reinvestment Fund. Um, one of the first um, relationships I brought to the organization was a for-profit um, housing developer in West Philadelphia called Neighborhood Restorations. And over the years, we financed hundreds and hundreds of scattered site renovations and infill new constructions that have become rental homes, uh, whole home rentals um, in West Philadelphia. And it was only fairly recently that we were finally able to deal with um, some of the less than vibrant commercial corridors in West Philadelphia. So the housing piece we could figure out with help from the redevelopment authority, help from low income housing tax credits, we could make it work, <coughs> excuse me. But all throughout West Philadelphia, there are these three block long, six block long, eight block long commercial corridors that are largely vacant today, very underinvested. Um, they were from a different time, right? They were from a different automobile age and an age when West Philadelphia was much denser and denser of a working class population that would walk down the street, perform their errands and then get on the subway or vice versa, get off the subway and do their errands as they walked home. And that's that, that kind of retail uh, has changed, right? So there's now all this national retail and there's all of this big box retail. And there's a there's the magnet of Walmart and there's the magnet of various other big box solutions that draw people out of their neighborhood for many of their purchases. And these commercial corridors didn't really serve a purpose. So we invested around them, but they were always kind of a lingering blight corridor. Um, 
and always a, a lingering problem. And it's only after investing in West Philadelphia for probably 20 years that we finally were able to work with this developer on one particular corridor, the corridor that lines up to the third busiest SEPTA station on the Market Frankfurt L. And we thought, Lord, why is the third busiest station on the L not stimulating successful retail? And it was because the place was disorganized, uh, lots of different property owners, many of them happy just to rent the upstairs and leave the storefront uh, shuttered. Um, not a lot of merchant coordination, not a lot of uh, resources from the Commerce Department from back in the good old days when there was you know, UDAG money for commercial transactions. And what we were able to do is help this um, developer get site control um, of about half of the vacants along the corridor and to do a mixed-use project of housing and commercial storefronts, uh, doing about 21 storefronts on three blocks. Uh, which was enough to really spark the place and to change the fa enough facades that people began to see a, a, you know, a different semiotic of what was happening in the marketplace. And subsequently, another eight storefronts were renovated by independent investors. And it's that kind of targeted, but never been done before, but very small transaction. It's not, it's not the sexy watercolor that, that's on the architect's wall, right, of the big new sexy, modern, multi-story, mixed-use, spaceship-like um, architecture thing that we see all the time now about low-income housing above, a health clinic or low-income housing above, you know, a grocery store in an urban area. This was the hard work of, you know, 27 different mixed-use row homes. And nobody wanted to take that problem on, you know. Uh, it, I was glad that we were able to be there with the financing and the pre-development and the acquisition funds to do it. And I was thrilled that this developer took it on because they saw it as necessary to underpin the strength of the neighborhood where they had all their other investments. And it's that kind of transaction that comes as the 20th transaction that you could have never imagined when you started with the first, second, and third that you'd ever get that far. That was really um, rewarding for all of our staff to be involved in. And um, we were also very thrilled to connect that transaction with the new um, CDFI bond proceeds available from Treasury. So the, the U.S. Treasury is invested on that block. Do, do you guys do any uh, work with other funds, say, bring them into any of the deals? Absolutely. I think we were brought into the Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, Vincente uh, grocery store. Uh, we worked uh, with Boston Community Loan Fund and I believe LISC. Um, we might want to check those names, but I think there were three or four different CDFIs between the grocery store and the health clinic next door that all partnered collaboratively. You know, it's one of the things that's also very unique in our space is the degree to which when when somebody catches a big fish, uh, you can circle the wagon, I'm mixing metaphors, um, and, and, and just deal with it, even though none of us are quite big enough to deal with the big fish. Um, we financed um, a Renaissance charter school in Camden with $45 million. Well, we didn't have the ability to do a $45 million transaction. We circled the wagons and we got um, two or three of our peers to chip in equal parts. Uh, and these are loan funds based in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., you know, that 
this wasn't Camden was not their backyard, but they appreciated the opportunity to deliver high quality education in such a distressed city. And uh, we're thrilled to be part of the deal. Um, so our collaboration, I hope it survives as we all get bigger. Um, but it's been a, it's been an operating principle in community development finance. Great. So if you look in the future, obviously you're going to get bigger. Uh, it seems like you guys are going in the right direction with collaboration and everything. Uh, uh, what do you see? What are your hopes? What are your aspirations um, for, for, for the CDFIs and for, for your fund in particular? Well, if, you, if you've ever played SimCity um, <laughs> or some other simulation game, um, uh, you'll be familiar with, you know, you're doing your work trying to build a block, trying to put a bu building here and a building there and trying to make things work at a particular level. And you realize that there are these other forces, these other algorithms working, right? Uh, sometimes against you, sometimes with you. And I think, you know, as, as we're trying to grow, uh, if it's taken us this long to grow to a billion dollars under uh, management, and yes, we're growing faster now, um, we don't have time to grow to the scale necessary. And what we need is we need kind of a sea change. We need there to be an algorithm introduced to American society. And I think it's coming. And I think there's a couple of them coming, which are going to meet us. And hopefully when that wave comes, we'll still be relevant and we'll be ready for it. But there's a new generation of students who are becoming employees, who are becoming managers, and then are going to direct programs at major corporations. And the idea that a, a new generation is going to presume a different level of responsibility about circumstances in the world is very hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful that they do not all become zombies in these corporations and that they're going to keep this orientation towards just taking a different level of responsibility and a different level of engagement. Because what's been missing from our work And we've always been engaged with the financial sector and we've always been engaged with the religious sector and we've been engaged with individually motivated investors. The corporate money has just been off the table and it's the corporate money, which when aimed properly could really, really help us get to scale. And we're starting to see that with insurance companies appreciating um, that their investments um, need to have a lens around impact and positive effect. And I think we're starting to see it with pension funds, although I'm a little worried that the first stuff we see is very much just kind of a impact washing, green washing kind of thing. Um, but I'm thinking that uh, there's, there's this effect that people will have, a new generation will have on corporate America. And then, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that impact investing is uh, actually going to race ahead of us. And while we represent a pretty big piece in our kind of domestic community development finance sector of what's going on in impact investing as it gets counted each year. Increasingly, we're not, we're shrinking in relevance because it's just being taken up in so many other contexts. And what I'm hoping there is that impact investing becomes such a norm that impact questions are part of every investment. And when that happens, the world will have changed in such a way that so much more will be fertile to our mission that will be so much more impactful and ability will have a different ability to scale, a different ability to have a different 
scale of ambition when that happens. But the promulgation of impact investing as a norm and the promulgation of a new generation of, of students who become workers, who become managers, who are taking with them um, a different concern for the planet, a different concern for their fellow men, that hopefully that kind of combination of those two sea change events, when they get to scale and they, they become the norm out there in the environment, it changes the environment for us and our ability to get stuff done. Because right now, as you can see, we, we are quote-unquote large, so they say, but not large in any financial institution sense. We're large just compared to the other ones like us that you find. And you know that's not a really relevant scale. Uh, the scale is um, is when is when is one of us going to get to be the size of Citibank? When does a Citibank or a MetLife or whoever it be um, pivot and say our entire balance sheet will be impact? And we're not going to change our 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 profit focus, but we believe that we can combine the two. And when that stuff starts to happen. They're going to need somebody to fill their balance sheet. They're going to need somebody to create these instruments for them to invest in, for them to underpin their their corporate work on, and that will come from our field. A big piece of it will come from our field, or at least the learnings will come from our field, and then, you know, perhaps the marketplace will finally take over. But I'm excited by the next generation of people, and I'm excited by the propagation of impact investing uh, as a norm. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end the conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of the Impact on Record podcast. We had a great time talking to you. So thanks again. Impact on Record is a podcast about impact investing. If you'd like to hear more, visit iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out impactonrecord.com. There you can learn more about our guests and the Impact on Record trio. If you haven't heard it here, it's not on record.